Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. Well, uh, last week I heard a phrase about animals, an idiom that I had never heard before, and actually it was uttered by none other than Lori. And maybe it came out this way because it was way past both of our bedtimes, but uh, she used the phrase like chicken and mouse. And uh, I don't think she realized what she said till I pointed it out to her and started chuckling. I'm like, do you mean like cat and mouse or like a game of chicken? You just sort of blend it. And then we laughed and it was funny. And it's a sort of interesting uh, little uh, slip. And actually those two idioms, they're somewhat similar, like cat and mouse and a game of chicken. Well, not long ago, we actually broadcast a nice segment about some animal idioms. And, you know, there are so many interesting ones. I want to play that for you now. Hey, Peter. Hey, Lori. How you doing? Good. You know, I want to remind everyone that the show is a project of advancing the interest of animals, the nonprofit. That you're the president of that, aren't you? I am the president. How convenient. Are you secretary or something? <laughs> something lower than president. Anyway, check advancing the interest of animals out. It's aianimals.org. Yep. And the show's been on how long now? We're in our eighth year of production. If you like what you hear, consider donating to our organization, aianimals.org. And if you want to listen to any of the prior shows, just go to the website, animalstodayradio.com, and they're all there. You can also subscribe on iTunes and listen on your mobile device. That's fun. That is fun. What do you have there, Peter? (laughs) I have, oh my goodness. Remember Anthony Weiner? I know Weiner. He was the former candidate for the mayor of New York City. Well, he was being interviewed on Fox 5 in New York, and he was asked if there was any way he would come out of retirement. You know what he said? He said, only if there's a Trump on the ticket in the New York mayoral race. Uh, as you know, Donald Trump Jr., people are talking about maybe he'll run for mayor. It's been denied strongly. However, Weiner said the following brilliant statement. He's known for his words of wisdom anyway. He said, and this is a quote, I would come out of retirement just to beat him like a rented mule, and then I'd turn the keys back over to de Blasio. Okay? That's terrible. I know. Beat him like a rented mule. So when I first read that, I and then I went to listen to it. It's like he had this little planned thing. But anyway, I read this and I'm like, I've, I've never heard that idiom before about animals. And I know a lot of animal idioms, as you as you know. So I wanted to uh, do a little research on what that exactly means. And it can mean a couple of things. Uh, it can mean just that exhausted. One commenter on a website I went to said that his father had used to use it all the time, usually after work. And he just said, I am exhausted like a rented mule. Another variation says it's like to beat someone as you would a mule that did not belong to you, like beat without hesitancy. Do you know that Senator McCain once used a phrase like that uh, when they were talking about how he intends to beat Hillary Clinton in the debates? Remember how decisively he did that? Anyway, he said, we're going to beat her like a rented mule in the debates. So there is some precedent for that. Either way, I don't think it's very nice. Wiener is <laughs> a weasel. Is well, weasel? that's not nice. Oh, it's offensive to weasels. That's right. Weasels are adorable little mammals. <laughs> is weasel an idiom? I guess it is, right? Weasel, unfortunately, has a negative connotation. Like, like, like sly, being, sneaky, just, lying. Yes, but we think they're cute. Anyway, there are a number of uh, animal expressions or idioms that are sort of cruel and not very nice. And 
we're always looking for substitutes for them, right? Humane substitutes, particularly if they're catchy. So uh, we found a couple of them, and we've incorporated a couple of these into our lexicon, haven't we? So here's one phrase I really don't like. It makes me cringe anytime someone says it. Kill two birds with one stone. Oh, I hate that one. Why yeah. not just say it's a twofer? I know. I We have a friend who likes it's a twofer, right. and she uses this uh, strategically, I would say. I sort of like it, but I don't find it very memorable. Mash two potatoes with one fork. How's that? Okay, that's, that's better. Water two plants with one hose. Water two plants with okay. one hose. Okay. <laughs> How about this? I like this one even better. Feeding two birds with one scone. Oh, that's nice. Isn't that? And it's got the bird in it, right? And you're feeding. Right. And, and you're caring for and animals. And scone, right? Yeah. Usually if there's a scone in the house, no bird's going to get it, however, because <laughs> uh, it would last less than one day in our house. <laughs> there's another one. Save two birds with one home. But I like the scone one. That's yeah. my favorite scone. Yeah. I think I'm going to steal that one. Another one I hate is there are many ways to skin a cat. Yeah. Another cringeworthy phrase. And people just throw these out and don't really think about what they're saying. It's not I that know, nice. You I know? know. How about there's more than one way to peel an onion? Okay, that's good. That brings tears to my eyes. <laughs> but I like this one better. There's more than one way to peel a turnip. Okay. Another one I dislike a lot, Peter's beat a dead horse to attempt to convince someone mm-hmm. of something. and You're not really doing a good job yeah, yeah. or you keep on arguing the same point over and over again. <laughs> and you know, okay. the origin of this one, I looked it up. It was in the 1860s when British politician John Bright tried to prompt his uninterested peers in Parliament to pass a piece of legislation. And he likened his task to, quote, flogging a dead horse in order to prompt it to pull a load. Yeah. Well, that is understandable in those times that you could do that. It's interesting why some things catch on and why they don't, you know, what you would say going viral these days. Yeah. There's this phrase, human guinea pig, that's pretty literal and uh, reminds us that guinea pigs and other animals have been and are still used to do little tests on. I don't know what you'd change that to that would be interesting. How about sweating like a pig? Yeah. Do pigs sweat? My understanding is that pigs have very few sweat glands, so they don't really sweat. And Peter, I looked up the origin of this one, and it has more to do with iron smelting than with pigs. Really? Yeah. Oh, I did not know that. I bet you very few people would know that, because when you say sweating like a pig, they're not thinking about iron. They're thinking about fat person resembling a fat pig. That's not nice either, but that's where we are right now. Do you have anything against when pigs fly? No, that's great. I know. I like that one. Me too. There's a one I don't like, go the whole hog, which means sort of go all the way or do the task. Yeah. Someone online suggested go the whole watermelon. Do you like that? Eh. No. Okay. You know, I sort of miss Anthony Weiner. He said so many interesting things and I'm a sort of grateful for this little inspiration. What else you got, Lori? (laughs) He's still a weasel. No offense to weasels. I love weasels. Okay. We got it. (laughs) Moving along. What else you got there? Uh, Cat got your tongue. Okay. That's pretty innocuous. Yeah. Okay. That's not like offensive, like it needs to be changed. How did that originate? I would like to know that. Oh, here's one. Let the cat out of the bag. I know the origin of this one. I bet you that's not a pretty image. It's, it really is not. Go ahead. So obviously the meaning to reveal a secret, right? So this was in 1700s. Marketplace vendors often sold pigs inside of a bag or a pig in a bag called pig in a poke, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. But you didn't want to buy a pig in a poke. 
because you weren't able to see the quality of the pig or even if you were getting a pig. So scam artists would try to sell a bag containing a cat, I guess, which was not so valuable instead of a healthy pig, unless you were smart enough to first let the cat out of the bag. Okay. Well, here's uh, another one that's not too cruel. It's raining cats and dogs. That's pretty benign and neutral, right? Right. That goes back a long time. The exact origins are are not known, but it probably goes to the 1600s. Then in 1738, Jonathan Swift published his book, which was a satire on the conversations of the upper classes. And one of the characters fears that it will rain cats and dogs. You know, Peter and I read it originated in the 18th century during heavy rainfall dog and cat carcasses would flow down along the streets. You know, I read that too. I thought that was refuted, but I guess we'll never know. My mom used to say that a lot. It's raining cats and dogs. Yeah. I ne- it was never a phrase that I really used. Well, I think I can bring up this idiom now since we are in the middle of the summer in the hot desert. Okay, I think I know where you're going. Yeah, dog days. Do you know what it means? Like dog days of summer? Yeah. No, I don't know what that means. Yeah, people do think it, it refers to dog days of summer, like hottest mid-summer days, uh-huh. right? I say that, but pro- dog, probably not saying it right. Right, but dog days dates to ancient Rome when Romans noticed the hottest days came when the dog star, otherwise known as Sirius, was oh. visible in the sky. Did you know oh, that? No. Yeah. Oh. I'll be a monkey's <laughs> uncle. Okay. <Aye>. Okay. <laughs> Okay, Lori, well, there's one more phrase that I really don't like, and maybe we can find a better replacement. In fact, I asked for help on this one, and it is like shooting fish in a barrel. Do you know that one? I know that one. Okay, so I asked uh, my friends online to give me a humane substitute for that idiom, and we got some, a couple of serious ones, a couple of, well, here's what we got. Like shooting politicians in a barrel, someone said. I thought that was good. Yeah, that's cute. That's that's not cruel. It's timely. It's humane. Okay. Right? Uh, this one makes most sense, like taking candy from a baby. So I, that's, well, that's not, sort of cruel. Not, oh. Okay. Someone thinks like shooting rubber carrots in a barrel. That doesn't make too much sense. Another comment, like shooting stars at the carnival. I think that's the little air gun sort of contest. Yeah. So that doesn't make sense to me. That's very hard. I've never done that successfully. Uh, someone said like shooting ducks on the pond. They're joking, obviously. And here's my favorite uh, possible substitute for the phrase like shooting fish in a barrel, like hugging koala bears in a closet. Okay. I think it's a little weird. It's a little weird. Why is it your favorite one? I think it's strangely weird. So here's our call to consider substituting humane alternatives for cruel animal phrases and change the course of human history. That is just the bee's knees. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Today's Animals Today Minute is about the Danube Delta. One of the most biodiverse places on Earth is Romania's Danube Delta, home to more than 5,000 plant and animal species. Only the Great Barrier Reef can boast more. This ever-changing delta, where the Danube meets the Black Sea, has 30 distinct ecosystems, including marshes, grasslands, reed beds, wetlands, and a forest. After the fall of communism, agricultural areas were allowed to be flooded again, and its prior natural state has largely returned. The Delta is one of the world's top destinations for bird watching, and visitors can view a variety of species including herons, egrets, and kingfisher. Other notable birds found there are bee-eaters, the very colorful European roller, and the hard-to-spot ictrin wobbler. 
In fact, more than 300 bird species called the Delta home or pass through it. In the summer, great white pelicans congregate and red-breasted geese are there in winter. The Delta is simply a delight for wildlife photographers. When you visit, it's best to take a multi-day tour with an established eco-friendly tour company. The Delta is sparsely populated by people and there's very little infrastructure like running water. Another rare feature of the Danube Delta is the oak forest, home to wild horses, turtles, and snakes. But at least for now, tourists are not permitted in this pristine zone. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. You're listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of the show. Well, I'm proud to say we are now in our 10th year of weekly broadcasts, bringing you timely and critical animal news from all corners of the earth. Join us each week as we explore animal welfare and animal rights issues, as well as fun pet topics with fascinating guests and experts. And if you don't catch the show live on your local radio station, you can listen two other ways by going to the Animals Today website, that's animalstodayradio.com, or as a podcast on iTunes. It's so easy to subscribe on iTunes, and when you do, each week, usually on Sunday, a fresh show will download right onto your device. I'm Dr. Lori Kirstar, and thanks for listening. Welcome back to the show. I uh, recently read an interesting article at the Yale Daily News by a senior there, a contributing reporter named Jacob Sweet. It's titled Emotional Support Animals Proliferate at Yale. And Jacob is here with us now. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. Okay. So, so you've written this interesting article about emotional support animals. What got you interested in this uh, topic? Well, I know when I was applying to colleges, I received a lot of mail um, from colleges across the country that advertised um, special dorms for pets and things like that. I knew that Yale uh, was not one of those places. Uh, so last year, uh, as a junior, I was surprised to see uh, there was a cat on a leash in my um, dorm courtyard. Uh, so that was pretty surprising. So I asked uh, the girl who had the pet um, if, it, if it was just her pet, if it was just visiting. And she told me uh, it was an emotional support animal. Uh, and I actually later found out that that was the first emotional support animal at Yale. So then I um, started getting into uh, reading about some pieces about emotional support animals. And I learned it was actually a pretty hot topic. Uh, the New Yorker had covered it. The New York Times had covered it. And uh, the, toys, the stories tended to be a little bit negative. A lot of people were complaining about animals being brought on planes. Someone tried to get a peacock uh, on a plane. Um, people just uh, seem to be sort of taking advantage of it uh, in these articles. Uh, and then I was kind of surprised to find that um, last semester, uh, someone in my college brought a dog. Uh, and so they had a dog in their, in their suite. And then uh, moving forward, actually another student in my, in my dorm also got another dog. So then I decided to, um, I noticed that this was kind of a, growing trends, so I decided to write an article about it. What sorts of things did you do to educate yourself about the uh, issues, or and especially how did you uh, dig into this deeper on campus? Well, the first thing I did was I uh, reached out to the resource office on disabilities on campus, and um, everyone I talked to said that 
uh, the associate director, Sarah Chang, was really instrumental in helping them uh, get an emotional support animal on campus. Um, so I went over to the office uh, and I talked to her a little bit about it. Um, and she was very honest with me. She said, uh, more more people have been requesting these. Um, there's not a, a ton of sort of scientific research to back up the sort of efficacy of emotional support animals, but um, she expected the, the trend to continue. And now how many animals, how many emotional support animals are there on campus? Uh, well, the last time I checked, uh, there were 14 on campus. And um, Sarah Chang also said that there's a few more requests in the pipeline uh, and that she expects the number to uh, increase. Do you think it's getting out of hand, as uh, was suggested in some of the articles you referred to? That's been our impression here in, uh, from our view in Southern California, not necessarily on campus, but almost everywhere we have this feeling that people are abusing their privileges. Do you, you see that at campus, or you think they're being cautious about uh, who gets to bring an animal? Yeah, it's a, it's a really tough sort of situation to, to monitor because... To get an emotional support letter from a, a psychiatrist is not super hard. There are a lot of sites that offer 24-7 service. Uh, you can buy a letter for $79. Uh, and when I went out to reach, when I reached out to people who had emotional support animals on campus, uh, I was actually expecting that some of them really um, didn't actually need it and just tried to get around the system to get a pet. I think Yale has done a pretty good job in terms of um, increasing sort of the, the standard um, for students to obtain a service animal. You need a note from a psychologist and you have to meet um, with a sort of committee. Um, and everyone I talked to seemed to have um, some sort of reason um, to have an emotional support animal and it seemed to help them a lot and it seemed not to cause a, a huge disturbance. Uh, so it's definitely a it's definitely a really hard thing to monitor, and I think it's sort of an ethical dilemma whether or not to um, give one of your patients a letter. Uh, sometimes, if, especially if you know that it's not really something that's required, but you also know that they could just go out somewhere else and get that letter. Right. Um, so I'd say on Yale's campus, it's going fine so far. Everyone seems to be fairly responsible uh, that I talked to, but it's definitely. Um, it's definitely an interesting issue and something that can definitely be taken advantage of. Are the animals on campus predominantly dogs? I know you mentioned the first cat. Yeah. Um, the, the animals I met, I, well, the animals I met, uh, the people I met with animals, um, they, they, most of them were dogs. Uh, in, my, uh, in my dorm, there are two dogs and a cat. I'd say mostly, mostly cats and dogs, um, there, though there are also two hedgehogs on campus. Oh, and uh, I was actually uh, pretty skeptical of that. Um, but when I talked to uh, the student who had one of the hedgehogs, um, I mean, based on what she said, uh, it was, you know, it really helped her out a lot. And she just talked about the kind of semi-rigorous uh, process she had to go through to get it. Um, and none of her sweetmates had any complaints about it or anything like that. Uh, so it seemed um, more effective than I originally imagined, actually. Jacob, what are the limitations as to where the animals are allowed to go on campus? Can they, can uh, students bring the animals wherever they wish? No, so Yale's um, University Policy 44, uh, 4400 sort of outlines uh, where 
these emotional support animals are allowed to go on campus, and they're basically meant to stay in the suite uh, pretty much at all times. They're not allowed in the classroom or the libraries um, or any of the dining halls. So I think that's been uh, an effective part of the policy um, that has sort of kept them contained and not really sort of impacting anyone else. Uh, We've been speaking with Jacob Sweet from Yale. He wrote the article, Emotional Support Animals Proliferate at Yale. Thank you very much for visiting with us on Animals Today. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and you're listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm proud to say that we are now in our 10th year of continuous weekly broadcasts, bringing you animal welfare and animal rights news and stories from around the globe. Animals Today is brought to you by the Animal Welfare Organization, Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please check them out at aianimals.org and consider making a donation to help support the show. That's aianimals.org. And thank you for your interest and your support. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Lori, have you heard the phrase organ on a chip? No. Organ on a chip. These are new uh, technological devices. These are like mini... Uh, artificial organs, and they are used in laboratories to uh, test drugs and learn how drugs might work on people without trying to test them on animals, which are often a bad model for what happens in people anyway. So a whole new technology is beginning to rapidly grow, and this organ-on-a-chip technology really has a wonderful potential. It will allow researchers to uh, test so many drugs quickly and effectively. They're little bioengineered devices, and as I said, could really replace animal testing for the development of new medicines and other uh, therapies. In England, uh, the Queen Mary University of London has just been awarded funding to establish a network uh, in the UK to develop organ-on-a-chip technologies, uh, including a lot of universities there, because they realize how big this is going to be, and they want to push this along. Uh, Another interesting thing that they are going to be able to do is test combinations of medicines and see how they might work on a given person. And when this hits the clinical scene, this is going to allow individualized medicine to really take advantage of this technology. So you might have a clinical test to see how a a medicine might work for a given person's uh, biochemistry. So the potential is really amazing. Right now, the market happens to be pretty small, but I guarantee within five to 10 years, this is going to be a huge financial market and a very important uh, research and clinical technology. And of course, we love it because it's better medicine. It's going to be healthier. It's going to promote the health and well-being of people, and it's going to move us away from the cruel 
industry of animal testing, which really needs to go bye-bye. I'm so pleased to welcome Dr. Mark Beckoff back to the show. Mark's latest book is titled Canine Confidential, Why Dogs Do What They Do. Mark is Professor Emeritus of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at University of Colorado Boulder, and among his many activities, writes the Animal Emotions column in Psychology Today. Hi, Mark. Hey, Peter. It's good to be on your show. Thanks for your interest in my work. Mark, on our Animals Today bookshelves, we have scores, if not hundreds, of books about dogs, about their behavior, training, health, about their feeding, about bonding with them, about communicating with them. We get them all the time. So let's begin with, why did you write this book? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I basically wrote the book because... I've been studying dogs on the, and their wild relatives, coyotes, wolves, foxes, for decades. And I bring a unique perspective um, because I'm trained in ethology, and I've actually spent thousands of, anim- have, have, thousands of hours watching dogs, free-ranging dogs, feral dogs, dogs at dog parks, dogs on trails, dogs on leash. Um, so I really bring with it uh, to the book that sort of perspective. And in many ways, I really wrote it as a myth buster because there's more and more myths appearing in the literature that really need to be, um, they need to be discussed in a more motivated way. So you note that there's a lot of research on dog behavior out recently, especially since 1995. Why do you think that's happening? And is it good? Well, I think it's happening, and it is great, because for a really long time, people were told that dogs aren't worth studying. They're artifacts of humans. They're not, I mean, there are people who said they're not real animals. And having studied wild coyotes and wild wolves and foxes, I can tell you dogs are really um, real animals. And what's interesting to me is they're easy to watch, They're not wolves, they're not coyotes, they are dogs. And over the years, we've learned a lot from comparative research on dogs that help us understand their wild relatives. And people need to remember that basically all dogs today came from a common ancestor, wolves. So what have we been learning from all this new research that's good for dogs and people? Yeah, well, a lot of my research, as you well know, um, centers on how we can best help the animals um, about whom we're learning. So one major message is that there's no animal who we can really call the dog. There's a lot of variation. So a lot of people, because they live with dogs, they share their homes with dogs, want quick fixes. And there is no quick fix because each dog is an individual being. So that's one thing we've learned from a lot of research um, is you know the individual the individuality and the unique personality of every dog. Another thing we've learned is despite what it looks like, even dogs who live in loving homes don't have very good lives very often because we're forcing them to live in a human-dominated world where they walk when we say they can, they're fed when we say they can eat, 
they interact with other dogs or people. When we decide it's okay, we basically also decide when they can go out and get exercise and poop and pee. And I don't mean that facetiously. So we really control their lives. And part of what we're learning is that dogs need to be able to express what they themselves want and need. And we're learning a lot from our current research on, on that question. You devote a lot of ink to dog parks. You seem to really love them. What's so good about them? Well, you know, as I write in the book, I love them too. And I was shocked to learn that there are, as much as I love going to them, there's many people who really hate them. And they really despise them. So my take in the book is that it's really up to the dog. If your dog likes going to a dog park, bring your dog to a dog park. And if your dog doesn't like a dog park or there's been problems, then don't go. And I really mean it is so simple, Pete, because people, yeah, I meet people who say, well, my dog doesn't like the dog park, but I like it. The human likes it. So we're going to have to go. And so there's there's a great example where even dogs running around crazy playing and having quote fun at a dog park might not really like the dog park if they were given a choice of whether to go or not dog parks are great though for studying social behavior um, among dogs between dogs and humans and I learned a lot about people by listening uh, to them talk and watching them at dog parks so for me um A dog park is a great uh, playground for becoming a dog ethologist and studying some social psychology. Okay, Mark, what is ethology? And tell us a little bit about your history in it. Well, ethology is the study of animal behavior, and it differs from comparative psychology, for example, because ethologists are generally, generally biologists, and they try to do as much field work as possible. So I always think of myself as a naturalist at a dog park, and I spend countless hours just watching the dogs, not interacting with them, not interpreting anything. So that would be a fairly unique view. Um, And I know it sounds self-serving, but I don't know of anybody who's really written a comprehensive book on dogs who's also spent a lot of time studying wild, their wild relatives like I have. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, once again, I go to a dog park, I look at each dog as an individual being, and I want to see how they interact with other dogs and with people and what we can learn so that we can always give them the best life possible. You wrote that not only do dogs make our individual lives better, but they also inspire us to make the world better. Explain that, please. You know, you can think of dogs as bridging what I call the empathy gap or a gateway species. And I often ask in talks, would you do it to a dog? And people look at me and I'm referring, would you put a dog on a factory farm? Would you put a dog in a laboratory where there's abusive research? Would you kill a dog for fun? And I'm not asking these questions to really be nasty, but what, but those questions 
motivate discussion in terms of how we interact with other animals and how we interact among ourselves. And once I get past that, you know, I'm not trying to put people on the spot. I've had phenomenal conversations, you know, about dogs are no less or more sentient than cows, pigs, chickens, and goats who get served up as food. Um, They're no more sentient than rats and mice who um, undergo some really invasive research. So that's what I that's what I meant by that statement, you know, that dogs can bridge help us bridge the empathy gap and they could be what, you know, people I, I call like a gateway species. Mark, do you think our increasingly technological world is good for our relationship with dogs? Well, concerning dogs, if I'm getting you right, Pete, is you know, a lot of people are spending time writing on artificial intelligence. They're building robotic dogs. Um, you know, they're building, you know, pet rocks came and went. So I don't see any advanced technology actually replacing that very special bond that people have developed with dogs and other animals. Um, if I mean, I'm not quite sure if that's where you were going on it, but, um, you know, recently I was quoted in an article about a research group that is, you know, in the end is trying to make a robotic service dog, for example, and having worked with veterans and others who really need the help of a companion dog, I just don't see... I, I don't see some robot, some mechanical device replacing a living, sentient being. Yeah. We've been speaking with Dr. Mark Beckoff. The new book is Canine Confidential, Why Dogs Do What They Do. It's available everywhere. Mark, thank you so much. You bet, Peter. Thank you. And, you know, your listeners can always find me. <laughs> yes, we know. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs> Today tip of the day is about urine spraying by cats. Spraying is a way for cats to mark their territory. Spraying is mainly a trait found in male cats, but females will also mark when they are in heat. Of course, in house cats, it's quite undesirable, but fixing your cat is the best way to correct this problem. Litter box issues are another common cause of unwanted spraying, but if the behavior persists, ask your veterinarian to make sure there are no other medical problems present. And that is your Animals Today tip of the day. Welcome back to Animals Today. According to the Insurance Information Institute and State Farm, the largest writer of homeowners insurance in the United States, dog bites and other dog-related injuries accounted for more than one-third of all homeowners' liability claim dollars paid out in 2017, costing almost $700 million. An analysis of homeowners insurance data by the Insurance Information Institute found that the number of dog bite claims nationwide increased to 18,522 in 2017. This is a 2.2% increase compared to 2016. 
The average cost paid out for dog bite claims was 37051 in 2017, which was up by 11.5% compared to 2016. Kristen Palmer, Chief Communications Officer with the Insurance Information Institute, stated the increase in the 2017 average cost per claim could be attributed to an increase in severity of injuries. She states that the average cost per claim nationally has risen more than 90% from 2003 to 2017 due to increased medical cost as well as the size of settlements, judgments, and jury awards given to plaintiffs. California continued to have the largest number of claims in the United States at 2,228 claims. That's in 2017. California also had the highest value of claims in 2017 at $90.4 million. The state with the second highest number of claims last year in 2017 was Florida. The state with the highest average cost per claim was Florida at $44,700 per claim in 2017. National Dog Bite Prevention Week focuses on educating people about preventing dog bites. Now, this is from the American Veterinary Medical Association website with an estimated population of 70 million dogs living in U.S. households. Millions of people, most of them children, are bitten by dogs every year. And you need to know that the majority of these bites, if not all, are preventable. The U.S. Postal Service reports that 6,244 postal employees were attacked by dogs in 2017. This is down a little bit compared to 2016. Children, elderly, and postal carriers are the most frequent victims of dog bites. And as we just reported from the Insurance Information Institute, in 2017, insurers across the country paid nearly $700 million in claims related to dog bites. Nearly 29,000 reconstructive procedures were performed in 2016 to repair injuries caused by dog bites. That's according to the American Society of Plastic Surgeons. Okay, so here's some great information from the AVMA or American Veterinary Medical Association website on dog bite prevention. Dog bites pose a serious health risk to our communities and society. More than 4.5 million people are bitten by dogs each year in the U.S., and more than 800,000 receive medical attention for dog bites, according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control. At least half of those bitten are children. A few more little facts. Almost one in five people bitten by dogs require medical attention. Children are by far the most common victims of dog bites and are far more likely to be severely injured. Most dog bites affecting young children occur during everyday activities and while interacting with familiar dogs. Senior citizens are the second most common dog bite victims. Remember, any dog can bite, right? Big or small, male or female, young or old, even the cutest, sweetest, fuzziest pets can bite if provoked. And a big point here, it's not the dog's breed that determines whether a dog will bite, but rather the dog's individual history and behavior. Most dog bites are preventable, and there are many things you can do at home and within your community to help prevent them. Dogs bite for a variety of reasons, but most commonly as a reaction to something. If the dog finds itself in a stressful situation, it may bite to defend itself or its territory. Dogs can bite because they are scared or have been startled. They can bite because they feel threatened. They can bite to protect something that is valuable to them, like their puppies, their food, or their toys. 
Dogs might bite because they aren't feeling well. They could be sick or sore due to injury or illness and might want to be left alone. Dogs also might nip and bite during play. Even though nipping during play might be fun for the dog, it can be dangerous for people. It's a good idea to avoid wrestling or playing tug of war with your dog. These types of activities can make your dog overly excited, which may lead to a nip or a bite. So what can you do to prevent dog bites? Well, socializing your dog helps him or her feel at ease in different situations. Responsible pet ownership, we all know about that. Education, educating your kids about how or whether to approach a dog. Also, pay attention to a dog's body language. That can be very helpful. And most importantly, avoid risky situations. Avoid petting a dog under these scenarios. If the dog is not with its owner, if the dog is with its owner, but the owner does not give you permission to pet the dog, if the dog is on the other side of a fence, don't reach through the fence or over a fence to pet a dog, if a dog is sleeping or eating, if a dog is sick or injured, if a dog is resting with her puppies or seems very protective of her puppies and anxious about your presence, if a dog is playing with a toy, if a dog is growling or barking, if a dog appears to be hiding or seeking time alone. So you want to avoid petting a dog under these risky situations. Peter, this is fun. A survey of a thousand dog owners and a thousand cat owners by Mars Pet Care shows dogs typically have a greater influence on their owner's decisions than cats do. So the survey found that cat people fancy themselves more creative than dog people overall. Dog owners, however, tend to earn more money on average, $47,000 versus $40,000, with dog owners twice as likely to work on the financial field and cat owners being nearly four times as likely to work in creative fields. Furthermore, dog owners spend 33% more on clothing and accessory and 26% more on entertainment than cat owners do. Now, cat owners are more likely to take in a documentary and show a higher preference for musicals and indie films, whereas dog owners are bigger fans of horror and action films. Another big difference they found, cat owners more likely to enjoy gentler hobbies such as reading, writing, or doing a bit of gardening, and dog owners are more into sports yoga, dancing, and travel. The survey found that dogs are much more likely to improve their owners' lives through exercise than cats. That's 45% versus 8%. And interesting, dog owners are also more likely to be runners with one quarter, 25%, saying that they run regularly versus only 16% of cat owners. And not surprising, the majority of cat and dog owners are more likely to credit their pet with reducing stress. Other similarities, more than a fifth of pet owners take their dog and cats on vacation with them, a quarter eat meals with their pets, and more than a third buy their animals' presents on birthdays and holidays. Both dogs and cats have a massive effect on their owners' week-to-week -week life planning, more than two-thirds confirming their pet is a huge factor in their daily planning. And this is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet the animals. Hi, this is Lori. And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at animalstodayradio.com. Animalstodayradio.com. And visit us on Facebook. And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. That's animalstodayradio.com. Thanks for listening.